This podcast is the design of City Sites Urban Media, and our goal is to bring into focus the difference between culture and God's ideas found in His Word. To learn more, go to citysitesurbanmedia.com. In most churches in America, if I walked in, I wouldn't know what they were doing, to be honest with you, because we have left behind the doctrine of sola scriptura in the church. So churches are basically based on the cleverness and pragmatism and charismatic personality of leaders. People want to have meaning in their life. They, they, they either want to be entertained or they want to have some kind of meaning. So you make them busy. You make them part of a machine. You make them part of a vision of a charismatic leader. So you can build a church on all kinds of things that aren't biblical. There is no excuse, but they're founded upon the fact that pastors do not fear God and are not managing God's bride according to the dictates He's given them. Furthermore, a lot of pastors are building their own kingdoms on the bones of unconverted church members. On the day of judgment, do not fear for the atheist so much, the thief, the murderer. If you want to be afraid for someone on the day of judgment, be afraid for those who carried the title pastor. This is the City Sites Podcast with Larry Kutzler. It has been said, as the pastors go, so goes the church. Leadership is so important because they steer the ship. They drive the emphasis. They make or break the important things we should all know about God. There are many great pastors and Christian leaders in our land. However, we are seeing more pastors, seminaries, and Christian leaders in general shift their emphasis from expounding on God's Word to a philosophical emphasis on being fulfilled as a person. I call it the Dr. Phil pulpit, and its intention is to help people be the best person they can be as they serve God and serve others. The problem with that thinking is simple. It's not biblical. You may argue with that point, but when Jesus told us that we had to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him, there was no self-help emphasis in his teaching. Here is what he said in modern language. Deny your personal ambitions. Suffer whatever it takes to make Jesus first in your life. And then, come follow me to the ends of the earth. There's nothing in that verse that makes me want to jump in with both feet. Absolutely nothing. Argue you may with my conclusion. But remember, as Christians, our leader gave it all to fulfill his calling from heaven. And so what will it take for you to fulfill your calling from Jesus? I'm sure it isn't going and finding your best self now. Today I've got a good friend and a minister of the gospel in the studio with me, and I always like to pull this friend in when I have some, you know, good questions to ask or some controversy in the air. And he has a great saying, love God, we love people, but we don't always love what people do. I love that, Sean. I mean, that's really a good way of answering most people who want to entangle you into a discussion or a debate. Well, you're right, and I that was the goal, is to create some something that we could have as an answer, a response, when people came to us and wanted to pull us into the weeds of agendas, personal agendas, or issues 
that maybe were a distraction from our mission. And we want to stay mission central. And we know what we're called to do. And sometimes there's many agendas out there. Some of them are good. Some aren't, aren't so good. But just because there's a good cause doesn't mean we're supposed to be on board with every good cause. And we certainly don't want to be on board with poor causes. So we just say it like our name rank serial number, so to speak. It's <laughs> uh, We say we love God. We're committed to this. We're committed to loving people. But we don't always endorse or enjoy what people do. You know, that becomes an individualistic thing. And, and we try to steer clear of kind of being a part of something that we just don't agree with. But we stay with the central two things. And that's the, what God, you know, when Jesus said is the greatest commandment is love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love people or others as yourself. Well, that was the voice of Pastor Sean Morrison. He is the pastor of Cedar Crest Free Methodist Church yeah. in Bloomington, Minnesota. Correct. Plus, he's the executive director of a nonprofit known as Good in the Hood. Well, Sean, we've had this discussion from time to time. You're a pastor, obviously. And I'm sure you have to focus on issues that you know the congregation would benefit from. So you don't go out of your way to irritate people, hopefully. Well, maybe you would, but most most. <laughs> pastors don't. I, I do a good enough job all by myself without trying. There you go. <laughs> but so often what I have noticed, just as someone that goes to church, that mm-hmm. a lot of the messages don't ask the real tough questions. Yeah. Tough questions like, what is the difference between killing the babies through abortion in America and the gas chambers that killed the Jews during mm-hmm. World War II? Now that's pretty stark. I get it. But there is a problem with abortion in America today. Mm-hmm. So we aren't hearing the questioning factor of some of the moral tendencies of our country. And why is that? I think some of those things you just brought up would be looked at as edgy, but they're only edgy because I think our society has been, in a way, we've become like that frog in the pot of water that's gradually heating up. And we don't realize the environment and the culture and the philosophies, the theology, the ideologies around us are influencing our perspective and even causing us to, in many ways, to dilute our moral parameters. It's in the place of our conscience, the way we become inclined towards certain things just because of the influences around us. And what happens is churches are filled with people that have a certain belief, but then you're also filled with people that maybe been wounded or hurt in some way. And that also flavors how a minister might teach something from the pulpit, because if you come down hard in what they would deem hard on a particular issue that they were hurt by or wounded by, or if you come in with a strong sense of something, they may feel that strength is associated with somebody who was an abusive person in their life. And so you're dealing with it's sometimes more of a dance of how do you bring truth without making it diluted and without in any way diluting that truth, but also without presenting it in a way that looks like it's overly harsh or pressing the point from a personal agenda perspective. And that's, that's a, I think it, in leadership, we need to be wise and more skillful than maybe in previous days when people accepted truth. And I think they were more maybe uh, inclined towards receiving truth for what it was rather than for how it feels. In your explanation, I can see why pastors then 
would avoid certain things. Mm -hmm. The last thing a pastor wants to do is damage people or Mm -hmm. wound people. He wants to bring healing. He or she wants to bring healing to the congregation, to the individual. But at the same time, truth is necessary for culture especially to understand what God's expectations are. I mean, we can always say God is love, and that's very, very Mm -hmm. true. But as we read the Bible, we see places in the Bible where he's he's a judge, and he does things that makes us you know, a little bit uncomfortable. So what do you do with that? Well, I think you have to, first of all, discern what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to comfort people in their emotions and be balm or salve to their wounds? Or are you trying to heal those wounds and bring freedom to them? So you first, I think, you have to define what your really your objective is you're trying to achieve. And then the path to get there needs to be one that continually not only upholds truth, but it, we present truth not with a blade, I like to say, but maybe with a little more like a butter knife. You know, you're, sure. You, I think sometimes we get sloppy with the truth, almost where truth becomes a weapon. But the truth can be straightforward as it can be and is. It sometimes can be used as a weapon. On the converse side, though, we can't then become so, you know, I'll say, sensitive to somebody's situation that we compromise the truth. So it's a, it's both and. You, it's not either or, but we have to have the grace and the wisdom to be able to present it well. And I just think Jesus was full of, you know, truth, and he was full of grace. And grace is not what I... I've often heard people use it's not something that permits us to continue in sin, and it empowers us to overcome sin. And grace is powerful, but it brings its power with dignity. I know I've asked you to come with five tough questions <laughs> that are not usually asked yeah. in church. And before we get there, I have a question for you. I, I'm going to read a portion of Scripture, and I mm. want you to identify, is that the God of today? Mm. Okay? So this, is, this is from the Bible. Okay. It says... A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In the whirlwind and in the storm are his ways. That's Bible. Yeah. But... That is never what we hear from the pulpit, do we? Well, I think we don't hear it as frequently, for sure. I would grant you that. And I think there is a greater reticence to preach something that would be interpreted as edgy and as harsh because there's propaganda both ways. There's propaganda where people think they've heard a million hellfire and brimstone sermons, and they likely have not even heard one in the last five years. (laughs) But because when somebody does preach anything that's edgy, they will say, oh, here comes another hellfire and brimstone, another, like they've heard it so many times, but they haven't heard it. But propaganda influences our thinking. I think the other side of it is, though, there's propaganda saying that nobody preaches it. And I think it's there, but it's being done probably not as sloppy as it used to be. I think people are being more intentional in how they present truth, and they're being more careful to some degree, that's accountability, and other, you know, another side of that is sometimes it's fear—fear fear well, of being ostracized by yes. a church. Well, I and, and I appreciate that kind response, but a, at the same time, if I were going to describe you, for example, mm-hmm. I would describe you as a father and a son, mm-hmm. and if I left it at that, that wouldn't give me the full picture of who Correct. you are. 
And I think that's what my biggest contention is mm-hmm. with much of the sermonizing or the teaching yeah. in the church today. We're getting only one side of the picture of God. I don't think that's fair educationally because yeah. you're only getting one side. Right. I think we don't preach topics or things from the Bible in proportion to what the Bible shares it. So we might share on, you know, of course, love, but we may not share on justice of God nearly as frequently as it's promoted in Scripture. And I've always said that we should emphasize any particular thing in proportion to what the Bible does. And so if judgment's emphasized a lot, then we probably should too. Love is emphasized a lot, we should too. I think we've biased as a culture towards one that's a softer gospel. And I think it prophesies that in the end days. It says they will find people, they will want preachers who tickle their ears. And I think we have seen that. Mm -hmm. No, you're absolutely right. I like that proportional piece because I think if you really look at the scripture, you'll find that justice of God very, very clear and quite often. But we often don't utilize it to the betterment of our congregations and our people. For sure. And I don't think that justice is bad. I mean, I Mm want to serve a just God. I don't want a God that looks the other way with one person, allowing sin or his sin to continue while he punishes the others. That's not a just God. Well, you're right. And we so often equate, and it's been taught, God like we saw our fathers here on earth. And so if our father here on earth if we envision that person with a frowning face, then we're going to picture God with a frowning face. Well, I think there's truth to that, but sometimes it's overstated where it becomes like a doctrine in and of itself. And it's as if, you know, if you're a dad, you have to be a totally emotionless person. And I think that's not, it's neutering masculinity to some degree. And I think we try to do that with God too. We want to take and neuter the masculinity of God to some degree. We should present God and not apologize for God the way the Bible presents him. I think he's pretty good and pretty secure at presenting himself pretty well. I don't think we need to improve it or change it or adjust it. Problem lies in that we've allowed, you know, I think there's good psychology, but I think sometimes we've allowed psychology to dictate what we believe in in the flavor of it rather than scripture itself. So I've asked you to come in with five questions that Mm -hmm. are hard questions. Mm -hmm. And why aren't we hearing that preached or taught in the church? And why not? Why don't you start with number one? Yeah, well, the first one was kind of an interesting one. When you asked me this, it was interesting because I thought there's a lot of ways I could take this, but I didn't want to go with what, you know, a person might easily traditionally think we would go with. I wanted to do some things that were a little bit maybe less obvious. But the first one was question, you know, is God's love truly unconditional or does this somehow contradict Bible truth? I mean, what I mean by that is this, is we've used this doctrine that, you know, God's love is unconditional. To illustrate, I used to teach a Bible class on evangelism at a local Bible school, and I did a test to the students. And I said, how many of you believe God's love is unconditional? Raise your hand. 100% hand raised without even hesitation. I said, so what you're saying is God's love has no conditions. How many agree with that? Raise your hand. And less than half raised their hand, and many of them raised their hand slowly. All I did was take and re-say the same thing, but my point in it was that we had begun a doctrine that, and I even asked them, I said, does anybody have one verse that they can give me? And they would give me verses that maybe tried to imply a certain thing, but never clearly said that God's love is unconditional. And I had to qualify this by even saying, I'm not saying God's love is not unconditional. 
What I'm doing is testing, do you really know what you believe and why you believe it? What's the basis of your belief? Is it because you received something from somebody that you just have been repeating and it sounded good and it's a great bumper sticker type of theology? Or is it because you really know where it's found in Scripture and you draw it from Scripture rather than just kind of inserting it into Scripture where it becomes even a greater doctrine than Scripture itself? And so I asked him, I said, is God's love unconditional? Is God's love without conditions? And I said, it's a nice phrase. I said, and maybe in many places it actually describes what we believe. But really, God's love has to have parameters. It's not unrighteous. Isn't that a condition? It's not jealous. Isn't that a condition? I said, all of these are conditional elements. I said, so when we say God's love is unconditional, we need to recognize what that term really meant when it was first used. It was meaning that God loves everyone and that it doesn't matter whether or not they're born again or they're just a person who's born. He loves them. It's provenient grace. His, his grace is for everyone, just like the sun shines on anyone and everyone, regardless of their status. God's love is for everyone. But that's different than his covenant love, which is very distinctive for those that are his, who have become born again and have received Christ as Savior. And we, in saying God's love is unconditional, we have made a whole doctrine out of something a whole theology that has superseded the Bible, and how dare anyone ever speak against it. If I preached on it in the pulpit and didn't do a really, really good job, I'd be ostracized very quickly. And it doesn't matter how many Bible verses I pull out, they would say that God's love is unconditional, and they would hold to that with all their hearts. It's very interesting how we can easily, and I use that as one example, where we start to take on something that has a cute phrase that we have become bumper sticker theologians. And uh, I think it's very dangerous. Yeah, very good. It's like uh, God helps those who help themselves, right? I mean, <laughs> for a long time, I thought that was a Bible verse. Yeah. It's not there. Okay, <laughs> let's go on to your second one. The second one is, is there biblical support for divorce and remarriage, or is it merely a cultural phenomena? This is a testy issue because so many have experienced divorce. And they don't even ask, nor do they want to be asked, whether or not remarriage is okay, is acceptable. And how dare I confront their delusion, even if the Bible doesn't seem to support it. Now, when I grew up, there was usually two reasons that biblically that people would ever give for even divorce. And that one was if somebody you were married to had an affair. And, and it would always say forgiveness is the best option. Restoration and reconciliation is always your best option. Always aim there. But if you can't do anything, be at peace with all people if it's at all possible with you. And so if an affair's happened, you have the legal right to divorce and to even be remarried, but that's not God's favorite and best option. And the other one was if you were married and became a Christian and your spouse was unmarried and that spouse decided to leave you, they initiated, you were free to let them go. In fact, it even seems to encourage, don't fight that. But that was the two reasons. Scripture seems to indicate, though, in the end days, just like the days of Noah, they'll be marrying and giving in marriage. And we're seeing that more and more. And now, not only do we have a seemingly a change in our moral parameters and our understanding of things, it's actually become ministries of compassion. And compassion then becomes permission. I don't understand that. I understand the compassion. 
But how did compassion suddenly become permission? Well, it is that uh, that whole idea that God is only love. I think that's, uh, that's the foundation of it. But, you know, it's interesting that you say that about marriage because a lot of folks nowadays, young couples, they don't marry. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even go yeah. through the, well, the ceremony or the right. license. They just, they just live together and share expenses and whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a big shift yeah, in terms is. of they don't trust marriage because they've seen so many marriages fail. Well, they have. And I think marriage, and I'm not here to in any way force someone who's been divorced and and they're in a situation where they got remarried. It's not even a thing where I'm out to make this my case or my cause. It's really, though, about do we respect God's word? And if God is a just God, I don't know how he's going to handle this, but it is up to me to teach and preach what I see is scriptural for the benefit of the kingdom of God and the glory of God. That's number one. Then also for the benefit of those that call themselves his. I think sometimes we create a man-centered gospel where it's all about making sure we have sympathies and and compassion and we make it so it's what I'd call user-friendly. But we have to remember one thing, and I, I think this is really important. God does not lower his standards to accommodate our current condition. What he does is supernaturally, by infilling us with his spirit when we come born again, he raises us to his standard. And uh, that's the power of the miracle of the gospel. We have diluted it, taken the miracle right out of the gospel. In recent years, culture has become more influential than the church. Much of the influence is a direct attack on the Bible and the truth. City Sites podcast is designed to bring a different point of view, and we hope you will continue to listen as we make our case. Well, let's go on to number three. What about idolatry was my third one in our society today? How is the church generally acting idolatrous and worshiping false gods? I kind of say this tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but there's a little bit of a truth in it too. There used to be Baal worship. I think we still have it. It's called foot Baal. Basket bail, base bail, <laughs> and it's Very of nice. course it's kind of. But have you ever noticed around events like the Super Bowl, what happens? I mean, people kiss the trophy, mm-hmm. they worship it, and right. nobody, even Christendom, they'll they'll actually cut services short mm-hmm. to to host the Super Bowl party in the church. You know, in one way, there's a side of me I really enjoy sports. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going. There's a side to it, seemingly is okay. But at some point, it becomes way too important. It takes on a level of importance that is ungodly. And where somebody plans their life around these matters, and it's not just sports either. It can be all kinds of things. But I think sometimes we have to ask the question, what constitutes idolatry? Is it actually the forming of a physical idol? Or is it a heart that places a higher priority on something other than God himself? And I think whatever that is, Mm-hmm. It could be food. It could be anything that we have an addiction towards or a bondage to. It becomes something that is the most important thing in our life. And and even goes to the point where Romans says it this way. It says, they will obey their sin. It doesn't just say they sin. It actually says they obey their sin. And I'm going, that means they are either so caught up in it that it's as if sin is now their master. And if it's their master, Jesus certainly can't be their master. No one can have two masters. So I think idolatry today can take on a different form. It sometimes has a physically a form like something, and other times I think it's the spirit of something about our intentions and our direction of our lives. 
The fourth one, how has Christian giving practices and beliefs, including the tithe, departed from biblical truth and historical practices? I think we think we're doing God a favor when we give a tithe of 10%. And I'd be first one to say, I, I think that we've completely missed it then. Number one, tithing was something you paid, you didn't give. And they paid tithes. That's a whole different mentality. You gave offerings and alms, but you paid tithes. Most don't ever think of it that way. And so that's one component. The other piece is this. We act like we're doing God or the church a favor when these different forms of contribution are given or paid. But that wasn't the heart of the gospel from the early days. They didn't claim anything that they owned as their own. They understood God purchased them with a price. And he owned their being and owned all the assets that had formerly been called their own. And they were merely stewards of these things in order to contribute to the greater community. But we've gotten into more individualistic thinking, less communal thinking, less community consideration. And so we think of it as something that we're doing and it's our choice. And therefore, we are doing God a great favor when we do these things as if he needs our help. It reminds me a little bit of the story of Uzzah. And in Uzzah's story, if you remember, it was when the ark was being transported, it was being received back from the Philistines and they were transporting it and it was something no one was to touch. And they had to carry it with poles. And the oxen who were carrying it or moving it stumbled and Uzzah thought the ark was going to fall and he reached out and touched it and immediately died. And I was really meditating on that passage going, and like David, David was kind of upset like with, at God, like how could you do this? We're doing you a favor, God, and then you do this. The point of this whole story was you don't do God favors. He needs no one's help. He is sufficient in himself. And it's arrogant to think I can assist God in anything. Wow. It's absolutely arrogant. Mm. And when I give a tithe or pay a tithe or give an offering and I think I'm doing God a favor, that is a very subtle thing, but it's an arrogance of great magnitude. And we need to recognize that no one individual is the hero. Jesus is the hero. And he asks us to be part of a community of us. And I think the tithe has become an American Western thing that has been used that if you do this, you will get X amount of things in return. Right. No, what you get is this. You get to continue being a wonderful member of the body of Christ and you get to be a part of a community that when your ship is tied with other ships and the tide rises, it rises together. And so we get the collective benefit. Oh, that's good. I thought Uzzah was a designer. <laughs> well, maybe he is. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I got a pair of Uzzahs on. <laughs> I don't know. What's the last one? How has the encouragement and practice of spiritual privatization in regard to faith had significant and harmful ramifications in Christendom? And that kind of goes piggybacks on the last point I just made. I always like to say it this way. There used to be theology, and now it's a lot about meology. And uh, in which, you know, our prayers, our teachings have become individualistically biased. How you will benefit if, here's seven principles that you will benefit. And we teach things wrongly. I've often said the armor of God was never taught or intended to be individualistic. It was a collective. It was taught to the church of Ephesus. And it's the armor of God to the body at Ephesus. And then we all learn from it. But we've become so individualistic that when we even look and read from Scripture, we tend to read into it our own misconception. So if we talk about the Lord's Prayer, we would repeat it and say, My Father... We would pray, my father, but it was Jesus saying, our father. It was, a, it was a collective, it was a plurality. There is room 
for the individual faith. It isn't that we should not have faith personally, but we have become so privatized. We've lost the ability to see things from a really a strong collective perspective. And so, again, we, we tend to see things only from how we gain benefit from it. And we're happy to do things for others, but we don't really have a stake in it. Um, if we do something for others, we look at it as my own personal kindness that's doing this. I'm just trying to, I just want to do good. We don't see it as helping ourselves. When I'm investing into a member of the body of Christ, I'm investing into me. So, Sean, as we conclude today, thanks for these five. I think they're very challenging. You've made them very challenging, by the way. But at the end of the day now, give some advice, just a short little caveat to pastors or people who do teaching and and do leadership things for other people. Why should they not avoid the hard questions? Great question. I think the key thing in all of this is love God and people enough that you're not going to conceal what is true. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. That's what it says. But sometimes we conceal truth because of we're afraid how it's going to be perceived. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. I'm not saying be harsh, but don't be so flattering to people that we actually don't allow them the freedom that they really have Jesus has paid the price for, lest we be the Pharisees, the blind leading the blind into a pit. If people like what you had to say today, how can they find you? Well, they can go, of course, to our website at goodenhood.org, or they can go to cedarcrestfmchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Every Friday, we bring you this podcast with interviews with people who are challenging the status quo of Christianity and challenging the cultural norms of our day. Please help us get the word out by sharing the link to this podcast with your online friends and family. Our website also contains other podcasters who are part of the City Sites network of communicators all sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Our website is citysitesurbanmedia.com. This is the City Sites Podcast Network. 